You're listening to the Family Discipleship Podcast, a podcast of training the church. We've elevated Christian marriage at the expense of Christian singleness. And that's not what the New Testament does, is actually presents both marriage and singleness as, as beautiful and valid ways of honouring the Lord and, and living unto Him. And, and we need to not fall for the, you know, once upon a time, everything was great and aligned with Christian ethics, now it isn't. Or the, the converse of that, which is, let's look at the culture around us today and pretend that the Bible affirms everything the culture affirms, because it doesn't. There's no insurance policy that Christian parents can kind of place on their, on their children that they won't walk away from Jesus. But I'm not sure I, sh- I would put the kid who walks away from Jesus for a same-sex sexual relationship in like a totally different category from the kid who walks away from Jesus for any other reason. All right, well, this is Adam Griffin. I'm here with my co-host first, the notorious Christian herself, Mrs. Cassie Bryant. How are you doing today, Cassie? I'm doing great. I, notorious, though. Is that, that a bad ring to it? I don't know why. Like infamous is is not is like the opposite of famous, right? Like famous for the wrong reasons. Is it infamous? Similar. You mean infamous? It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I said. What did I say? I thought you said infamous. Like we were doing an episode of uh, Three Amigos. He's so famous. He's infamous. I was. That was my British accent. (laughs) Sorry. Just kidding. Just kidding. Of course. We also have here with us my lovely wife, the apologist I love to apologize to, Mrs. Chelsea Griffin. How you doing today, Chelsea? Doing good. I am an apologist, but uh, just to clarify about your apologies, can you just tell tell the listeners that I'm not a tyrant making you apologize all the time? Oh, for sure. It's not forced. I apologize constantly no matter what. It's one of my quirks and uh, a problem I'm trying to work <laughs> on. I'm true. sorry about that, everybody. That. Really good. sorry. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, we also have on today's episode a guest, author, mother, and podcaster for one of our sister podcasts, Miss Rebecca McLaughlin. Yeah. How you doing, Rebecca? I'm well. I've never been Miss Rebecca McLaughlin, though. Oh, Mrs. Rebecca McLaughlin. I've also never been Mrs. Oh, what is it normally? Doctor? <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. Okay. Oh, when, is it doctor? When, when Brian and I got married, Brian was still doing his PhD and I'd finished mine. Yeah. And my brother introduced us after the, you know, to the reception. He's like, introducing for the first time ever. <laughs> And he said, Mr. and Mrs. Brian McLaughlin. I was like, excuse me. It's doctor <laughs> Mr. and doctor. Mr. and doctor is what it is. Right? <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Uh, well, you do have your PhD, which is very impressive. I uh, I did a doctorate a couple of years ago, and it's nothing compared to yours. I don't let anybody call me doctor, well, except do for you, my children. Do you know what? Actually, if you do a PhD in England, it only takes three years. Oh, really? So it is less Oh, nice. Than yours. Yeah. Well, so come, come to the doctor. I've always wanted an honorary doctorate. Do you think, are they giving any of those out in England? I'd like something where I don't have to do mm. any work. No? Oh. No. They, they, my oldest friend growing up, her mum, after I got my PhD, she said, I hear you've got a PhD. They must be flinging them out like confetti these days. Wow. <laughs> so, That's wow. Insane. So, yes. <laughs> Ouch. Well, uh, before we jump into the, the conversation I want to have today, I just want to say how much we're loving the new podcast that you're doing with our yes. friend Kyle, Confronting Christianity. Cassie, you're a listener? Yes. I just finished the episode with Rachel Gilson uh, about why does God care who we sleep with? And it was so good. So oh, I really enjoyed well, it. Was it. So good Rachel's so good is the yeah. thing. Well, and you and Kyle are pretty good. I mean, you're better than Kyle, but uh, <laughs> it's great. And uh, it's really helpful as we seek to engage our neighbors and 
um, believers, that even as we uh, seek to equip our teens in our church who have so many questions, like we're equipping them mm-hmm. to be apologists too, you know? And so um, I'm really grateful for the work y'all are doing. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, you've written a ton, but uh, I love the podcast work too, to be able to hear you speak into these things and obviously speak on a regular basis, but have like a weekly release of some thoughts from you and Kyle is a huge blessing. And of course, we love being in the same podcast family with Training the Church along with Knowing Faith and some other podcasts that we're excited about telling our listeners about this fall. We're going to have some other exciting new brother-sister podcasts to come, but let's get started with our conversation. Rebecca, before we jump in, would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about you, your family, your ministry, introducing yourself for those who don't know Rebecca McLaughlin? Sure. Uh, I come from the UK, which some may have deduced from my <laughs> accent. And I, ever since I was at least nine, I've been very sure about who Jesus is. Mm. And I've been very sure that you can't be a follower of Jesus who isn't in some flimsy form trying to tell other people about him. That's good. So I've been trying to do that for for a while. And I, I found myself all growing up in, in predominantly sort of non-Christian, very kind of academic circles. And so I just was having conversations with friends who had really good reasons for not considering Christianity mm. uh, or, or reasons they thought were really good and, and that there were sort of pieces of those reasons that were good. But what I believe then and believe now is that every seemingly good reason for not considering Christianity, if you look more closely, it actually becomes a reason to believe in Jesus. Mm. So yeah, I grew up in in the UK, um, did all my studies there, met my husband, Brian, um, right at the end of my PhD in English literature, right before I was going to seminary in the UK. And he's from Oklahoma. Oh, so he and I were kind of unlikely pairing and people yeah. who knew both of us before we started dating were completely shocked. When we, it wasn't like, oh, of course you guys. It was like, what? Don't they call, <laughs> isn't um, Oklahoma like the London of America? It's basically like- no, That's what get, I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so Brian and I got married uh, after my second year in seminary and he really wanted to move back to the US. I feel like I'm always meeting Americans who say, I wish I lived in the UK. I'm like, I met the American who really didn't want to live in the UK. (laughs) So he dragged me kicking and screaming across the pond um, to this delightful country. And as as is so often the case, when you look forward, I I feel at least like when I look forward, I have no idea of God's plan, really. Yeah. But when I look backwards over my shoulder, I see the ways that God has worked. Amen. Mm -hmm. And certainly marrying Brian was a piece of that. Um, moving here. I then got to spend nearly 10 years working with Christian professors Mm. at various leading kind of universities in the US and and in Europe. And after that, I I felt like I had almost like a roadmap to where the conversation really was at in terms of Christianity and all sorts of questions um, that come to us in conversation with our neighbors or with our our kids or with, um, you know, folks we're, we're trying to reach or mentor I, I knew leading Christian experts who would be at the top of the field in physics or psychology or history or, or sociology and the relevant fields to the, the kinds of questions that were being explored. And I wanted to write something that would make that information and those stories accessible to a larger audience. So I wrote a book called Confronted Christianity a few years ago. Yeah. And tried to just address um, 12 of the biggest questions that seem to come up frequently in conversation with with non-believers and I've been writing books and 
talking about Jesus ever since. Yeah. That's so great. And you guys have, how many kids do y'all have? We have three kids, 12, 10, and four. Nice. Um, And when we were considering having our third child, we were like, you know, our first child, Miranda, it's been a pretty easy ride. Second child, Eliza, who we love desperately, was definitely a more challenging little kid. So we're like, if we could guarantee another Miranda, (laughs) we should definitely have a third child. If If we get another Eliza, yeah, that would be a lot. Luke has blown both of them out of the water. He is oh, yeah. by far our most difficult child. Oh, we love man. him to death. And we did not bargain on Luke, but it's here he is. It's the ride of the third child. I did not bargain on our third either. And yeah. she is, she's like a blaze wherever she walks, right? I mean, she just <laughs> is like on fire and tons mm-hmm. of personality and she's going to probably rule the world someday. So yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. We're His just sister's called Luke the human hurricane. So yeah, just, yeah, that, that yeah. gives you a little flavor. Yeah. Well, you're in the party of five club. We've also got three kids, so we're a party of five. The Griffins are a party of five. That's right. It's a good, it's a good club to be part of. It sure is. Um, yeah. You have written a lot of books in like a very short amount of time. I remember first seeing... Confronting Christianity kind of hit, and then it was like dominoes. The next one came out. Was it Confronting Jesus? And then no, I, it's I, actually I, ten questions every ten should questions. Ask. Yeah. Okay. And then you've got Confronting Jesus, the Secular Creed. Um, do you have a kids Bible study on Mark? Right. Yeah, that's not come out yet. Okay, so the, that's coming. The ones, yeah, the ones out so far are Jesus through the eyes of women and Is yes. Christmas Unbelievable. Yeah. Yes, and we actually got the Is Christmas Unbelievable one and handed it out some, to some neighbors around Advent, which was so great. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, and so I have to ask as a mom and a doctor, not me, you, um, <laughs> how, like, what is inspiring all of this writing? What's, you know, it's kind of, I feel like you kind of came out of nowhere and all of a sudden it's just like this kind of, rapid fire coming out with stuff? I think, honestly, I've discovered that I really love writing, Mm. Mm. which I know is a bit odd. Um, You know, people say, oh, I love having written. I don't love writing. I actually just love, some people love going for a run. Some people love like making pottery. It's like the thing that kind of helps them feel centered Mm -hmm. and whatever. I just really like writing. So (laughs) that's part of the reason is I'm, I'm just... It's, it's really good for me. Um, and the fact that what I'm writing seems to be somewhat helpful to other people for is, sure. is delightful I because I would probably do it for myself. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it sort of keeps me out <laughs> well, of trouble. It's good for all of us too. Um, <laughs> we're really glad that you're writing and it's fresh and it's real and honest. And man, I know it's blessed uh, our church quite a bit. Um, yeah. What so far is your favorite thing that you've written? Gosh, that is hard. I I have a, I'm sort of serially monogamous when it comes to my books because the book that I'm writing at the time is the book that I love. And the book that's just come out that I wrote like a year ago, I'm like totally over that. It's like the ex-boyfriend sort of thing. We're like, oh, I guess I hung out with that. I'm like, I don't know what that book is. Um, So there's this extent to which my favorite book is the one on friendship that I'm writing right now. Oh, nice. In some ways, um, in some ways writing the secular creed which it was looking at, I don't know if you guys have in your neighborhoods those yard signs that say like, in this yeah. house we believe that black lives matter, love yeah. is love, women's rights are human rights, etc. There's a piece of me that thinks that's my my favorite book in the sense that I felt so, I feel so passionate about all the things in that book. It's good. And about the the disentangling of, on the one hand, validating uh, 
defending and, and desiring to flourish the lives of our black brothers and sisters, which is a profoundly biblical good. Mm-hmm. Disentangling that from affirming same-sex marriage for believers and transgender identities, which is is something that the Bible very clearly speaks against. Mm-hmm. And it, it grieves me the ways in which our sin, and when I say our there, I'm meaning the sin of um, white evangelicals, actually. I'm both white and evangelical, so <laughs> I sort of count myself in that tribe, has tangled those things up. Um, to where today, you know, people can say, well, just like you white Christians in the 60s used your Bibles to defend segregation of schools, now you're using your Bibles to oppose same-sex marriage for believers and transgender mm. identities. And it, it breaks my heart. But yeah. until until we fully recognize the first part of that statement is actually true, we're not going to have any moral legs to stand on today. Yeah. And as long as we keep saying, oh, you know, once upon a time – we were all living according to Christian ethics and then the 60s came and everything went horribly wrong and, and neglect the ways in which we were actually completely failing to live according to Christian ethics when right. it came to slavery, segregation, etc. We're not going to have the moral legs to stand on. That's right. Yeah. All of our listeners are adding that to their cart right now. Secular creed. <laughs> yeah. Well, while you're at it, listeners, what we really want to talk about is um, the 10 questions every teen should ask about Christianity. So add that to your carts as well. You wrote this book, Thank you for writing it. An apologetic book for young people is, I think it might be the first of its kind. And so we would love to know more about your drive to address the tough questions um, and where that came from for you. Like why for teens? My kids, as I mentioned, my, my girls are now 10 and 12. And they were, I guess, 8 and 10 or 7 and 9 when I first wrote that book. And they're in public schools in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the the conversations that they were having with friends at school and with teachers, et cetera, were really no different than the conversations that adults are having mm. when it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to how can you say there's only one truth and we can't just uh, validate all religions, how can you say Jesus is the only way? These kinds of things are, are things that in in some ways kids need, you know, certainly a, a simpler, like somewhat simplified conversations about those things but actually not much honestly I feel like um, it's easy for us to underestimate the capacity of our children yeah to en- engage with with complex scenarios and I-, I I believe deeply in teaching my kids about Christian sexual ethics from the ground up yeah not actually just because the sort of world out there is forcing this upon me but because I can't read them the Bible without teaching them about Christian sexual ethics. That's right. And I think a lot of what's gone wrong in our historic conversations on these questions is that we haven't put the gospel at the center, yeah. which the Bible does. So I sometimes say to non-Christian friends, you know, Christian sexual ethics is actually weirder than you think. Mm-hmm. It's not just that we think sex only belongs in marriage between one man and one woman for life. Yeah. But we think this is, in fact, all about a metaphor, which is about Jesus' love for his church. Yeah. You know, that's crazy, right? That's a crazy, crazy thing to base your ethics on. But that's where the Bible points us in terms of what Christian marriage is, what what sex is about, what what this should picture in the world and and why why it's designed as it is. And, And unless we give our children that foundation from the first, that it's not just 
a sort of baptized form of homophobia, which honestly, sadly, many, many Christian families have sort of passed on to their kids of like, mm-hmm. well, we want to have a generalized, just like negative view of gay or lesbian people outside the church. We want to pretend there aren't any people within the church who experience same-sex attraction yeah. or kind of silence those those who, who do. Um, and that's because, you know, gay people are bad in some generalized sense, more so than your non-Christian friend who's in a heterosexual relationship. I, I think the Bible is is pointing us to something actually quite different than that, um, something that is centered on Jesus. And and I think the Bible, as with any other area of sin, when when we turn and trust in Jesus, when we repent and believe, when we take up a cross and deny ourselves and follow him, it's not the path to less love. It's actually the path to more. That's yeah. right. And and I think one of the mistakes we've made, which has profound implications actually for our understanding of family and and parenting, is that we have we've elevated Christian marriage at the expense of Christian singleness. Mm. And, and that's not what the New Testament does, is actually presents both marriage and singleness as as beautiful and valid ways of honoring the Lord and, and right. living unto him. And we've we've collapsed family into the nuclear family, you know, two parents and 2.4 kids or 6.7 kids, depending on where you are and how you know yeah. how you roll. Um, we've forgotten that from a New Testament perspective, the primary family unit is actually the local church. Mm. Come on, uh, and and we need to stop acting like. Um, and it's it's beautiful to me to see um, adults in my children's lives being very yeah. important pieces of their discipleship, single and married, um, with children, without children, all of the above. Because that that's us living into this beautiful thing that God is is giving to us, and, and instead, I'll I'll stop rambling in a second. But instead, you know, people will sometimes say like, how how can you ask same sex attracted Christians to just like resign themselves to a life of loneliness because you you know won't let them get married? It seems to me if that is what we are doing with single people who are single for whatever reason, then we are absolutely falling short of Christian ethics. Now, Christians are not designed to be lonely. We're not intended to be lonely. We're intended to be one body together. And we need to start living as if that is true. That's good. Yeah, well, I loved how just approachable and accessible your book is as I was reading through it. You know, our oldest son is 10 and uh, our next son is nine. And just thinking, man, I think both of them could grasp this completely, the way that it's written. And the other th- one other thing I want to tell our listeners is that uh, Rebecca in her book, Y'all, makes uh, just a million comparisons and parallels to Harry Potter, uh, Lord of the Rings, Frozen, Aladdin, all these stories that uh, for a lot of kids are really like deeply implanted. And one thing I love about that, Rebecca, well, first of all, I, I hate um, like trilogy books, okay? So I could tell that you really like this. Um <laughs> Those books, movies like that make me feel very sleepy, but but people love them. But in a lot of like secular movies, not like Lord of the Rings, but like movies like Frozen or stuff like that, a lot of times I'm I'm quick to like criticize what is secular and ungodly about some of the ideas presented. 
and mm. to our kids, but I loved how many connections you were able to make, um, especially like about sacrificial love and um, Jafar being masterless in Aladdin and all this mm. stuff. It was great. And so I, that helped me just open my eyes a little bit where sometimes I can be too quick to like just shut something down. So I loved mm. that. And I thought that was so good for kids because these stories are so memorable to them, and especially to kids who have had less exposure to the Bible, but they, they're familiar with Harry Potter and with Aladdin. Right. And, you know, and yeah. so I thought that was really cool and love that about your book. Um, okay, so you touch on a lot of important issues, of course, that's the idea, right? And so one of the biggest challenges to faith in this generation is what our world sees Christians doing, like you mentioned, and even not owning the things that have happened in the past, whether it's racism, sexism justified by the Bible throughout history, or it's a church leader who um, mm-hmm. has a fall from grace or secret sin. A lot of people don't trust Christ because they don't like what they see in his people. Um, how can parents and churches have conversations about some of these difficult stories with our kids? Yeah, I think the starting point, and this is so hard for us to do as Christians, honestly, I I find this myself in conversation. We would really like to occupy the moral high ground. Mm -hmm. And we would really like to be that both we and our family and our tribe and our country and our like, whatever, whatever whatever group we find ourselves to be part of, we would love to tell a story in which we are the good guys. We've always been the good guys. And look at those bad guys out there. Mm. Unfortunately, slash fortunately, that is just not the gospel message, right? right. You know, I love, I love when Paul says in his um, first letter to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying where the full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yeah. And I, I don't think we are letting our kids down or diminishing the beauty of Jesus in their eyes if we are honest with them about the ways in which Christians in general, our tribe in particular, and we ourselves have in fact failed to live up to Jesus's yeah. moral standards. If anything, that, that I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise to them. Actually, if they if they understand the gospel. Right. Now, I don't say that to kind of justify it or to say, well, you know, of course, all Christians are sinners, and therefore, um, you know, every pastor who is abuse somebody in his congregation should be reinstated next Sunday because they repented. Like, I mean, there, there, are, there are ways to sort of misapply that, but I think having a, a fundamental like starting point of, of humility and brokenness and, and recognition that Jesus is the savior of the world and we're not, he is perfect and we are not. Um, in fact, we are so far from perfect that he actually had to come and die for us. I think there's an opportunity to reinforce the gospel as we tell our kids the truth about the history of our tribes. Yeah. And and I, I don't think that's selling them short or if anything, actually, I, I think one of the things that's been happening in, the, in recent years is a, a generation of children growing up themselves becoming aware of the history of racial injustice and how Christians have been in complicit in that, mm-hmm. seeing that that is not recognized by their parents, grandparents, pastors, etc., and walking away because that they can tell that they know that that just like that they know that justice is not being upheld. Yeah. If instead we say, do you know what we see? Like this is the truth. This is the history. This is the complicated, messy, painful, sinful history. Um, and we know that not because, or not just because secular folk out there have been telling us, but actually because the Bible tells us. Yeah. You know, look at the Bible and look at history, and you'll see some strong misalignment. But the answer to that is not, therefore, let's deconstruct everything in the Bible. The answer is, let's get back to the Bible. Right. 
you know, the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian, it was that they weren't half Christian enough. It wasn't that they were reading their Bibles too carefully, it was that they were completely failing to read their Bibles. I know, that's right. right. Yeah. So, so bringing people back to say, you know, actually, let's look at the Bible together again and see what it says. And there we will find some very clear things, some of which will be popular messages to those around us in culture, others of which will be profoundly unpopular. Yeah. And, and that's honestly always been the case. It's always been the case in the history of America. It's always been the case in the history of the world that, that there, are, there will be some, at least some significant elements where the, the culture, the prevailing culture is at odds with Christian ethics. Yeah. And, and we need to not fall for the, you know, once upon a time, everything was great and aligned with Christian ethics. Now it isn't. Or the, the converse of that, which is let's look at the culture around us today and pretend that the Bible affirms everything the culture affirms because it doesn't. Right, right. I love that you brought that up because that, that's a lot of where we're trying to go this season is talking about how different, like kind of the disparity between what the culture would even assume about us, what we believe about, uh, what we want to instill in our children and where it comes from. Even if it's similar in its practice and where it comes from is going to be different for us. It's a, mm. We're very different mm. than the culture. And one of the things I'm so glad you brought up in your book and you do this in several of the books, is that aspect of the secular creed that one of the ones that always kind of bothers me is this, that science is real, always feels like an accusation against me as if like, I don't believe that science is real. As if Mm -hmm. what the secular creed is saying, see the Christians or those who believe in God hate science or against science. I love the way you address this in your book for teenagers about how that science and Christianity are not only incompatible, uh, but some of the roots of science. Can you address that a little bit for our listeners just uh, without saying like, hey, give the book away as free content right now, but tell us a little (laughs) bit about how science and Christianity are compatible or not compatible. Yeah, so what we now call science was originally developed by Christians, not as an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God, but actually because they believed in a creator God who is both rational and free. Right. So you can look historically and see the sources of the, the scientific method and how they were you know, grounded in Christianity. You can look at many scientific heroes through the last four centuries who have been very serious Christians but you can also see, so, so on the one hand, what that, what that tells us, um, and there's a leading philosopher of science uh, at Princeton today, a man named Hans Halverson, who would say that not only was Christianity the, the original foundation for one scientific method, but actually today science rests much more firmly on theistic foundations than atheistic ones. He says mm. atheism doesn't actually give you a philosophical foundation for science at all. Now that's a sort of slightly more kind of esoteric, complicated conversation, but just take it as read from a... Princeton professor of philosophy of science that that's the case. So, so, so that's true. At the same time, it, we must recognize that since at least the fourth century, Christians have been arguing about exactly how the science of their day relates to the scriptures. Yeah. And if you look back at every seeming kind of um, science versus Christianity controversy over the last however many centuries, you'll find Christians, like serious Christians on both sides. So I think one of the things that would really help our kids if we did is to say, it is fundamental Christian doctrine that God created the heavens and the earth. There is no other creator, like he he is absolutely in control of all the things when it comes to creation. But Christians have been arguing about how God created for a very, very long time. And sometimes in our eagerness to uphold the Lord as creator, which I understand, like it's a good impulse. 
We want to point to things and say, oh, well, science can't explain this. So this is where God is at work. You know, here's the miraculous moment where God intervened. I feel like if we do that, we're actually selling his role short. Right. It's not just here's a miraculous moment. God is in charge of the whole show. Right. <laughs> so I, I think it is healthy for Christians to debate about how they, you know, how they understand Genesis, how they understand various sort of scientific um, models, et cetera. Like that's, that's fine. Yeah. But we shouldn't debate it as if this is in fact core to the gospel. Yeah. The, the, the fact that God created every human being in his image is core to the gospel. Exactly how God created us is actually not core to the gospel. That's something that we can legitimately argue about all day long. Yeah. Hopefully in, in brotherly and sisterly constructive ways. Yeah. But I think making that, that distinction is, is just helpful for our kids. Hey friends, it's March and that means Easter is right around the corner. In fact, Easter is in March this year. It's part of the reason I'm pumped to tell you about one of our sponsors who's got a really special Easter deal. This is a great time to get some new resources to disciple your family. Our friends over at Lithos Kids are having an Easter basket sale. They got the brand new Little Pilgrims Big Journey complete box set. It's now available. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love this resource. If you don't have it, you need to go check it out. Kids and parents have loved reading about Bunyan's beloved tale of Christian and his adventure to follow the king's path to Celestial City. And now you can get all three books in one box set along with a map and it comes with a coloring book and the whole thing is just 60 bucks. You can use the code FAMILY10 to get 10% off your entire order at Lithos Kids right now. So what a great discipleship opportunity. To find all this, go to lithoskids.com, see all the items in their Easter promo, including their new release, The Parables of Jesus, and the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Guys, we love Lithos Kids. You're going to love them too. Go check it out today, lithoskids.com, and remember the promo, FAMILY10, to get 10% off your entire order. Hey listeners, we live in a world where anxiety, depression, and weariness seem to be the basic descriptors of our lives. For many of us, our calendars and our plates are overfull, yet our lives still lack joy. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus invites you to have true and abundant joy that's only found in Him. In John 15, Jesus reveals three very surprising pathways to finding this type of joy. You can discover these pathways in the new book, Overflowing Joy, by author and Bible teacher Tara Dew. This is available at LifeWay.com, and you can save 40% off with the code JOY40. Again, that's J-O-Y, the number four, the number zero, at LifeWay.com. The new book is Overflowing Joy by Tara Dew. Check it out. I think we talk often in our own family about how even turning on a, a cartoon show, some of them of which my wife refers to them as atheist animal shows, uh, which always cracks up my <laughs> kids. But now there's a lot of kids programming uh, that would teach them something different than we believe about where things came from or how they worked. But we teach our kids often about how science is discovery of how God did things. But I think to your point, what's truly miraculous about God is not that he has to supernaturally intervene all the time in order to act, but that every minute detail that is happening all the time, that he created the systems by which they work and he is involved in them still that the minutia, yeah. the detail. It's not that um, he has to like uh, walk on the water and stop the storm to be involved in what's going on in nature. So right. why don't churches, because I feel like so often we're sending kids off to college who have never heard their church say anything about yeah. science, who yeah. it's just not a topic we address. Why don't more churches address science? Why does it seem like so many 
kids are one question about dinosaurs away from uh, wondering if their church is afraid mm-hmm. of answering anything. Yeah, and I think it's partly because we have unhelpfully made things that are truly kind of debatable and secondary into primary things. So that means either either we've kind of been terrified to talk about science because as soon as my kids discover that actually there's a scientific explanation for X, Y, or Z, or Z as we say in England, that suddenly that's going to kind of rob them of their belief in a creator God. Yeah. Um, so we might be sort of too afraid to to talk. Or on the other hand, we've just kind of opened our mouths and said a bunch of stuff which may or may not actually be true and helpful. Um, and which as our kids study more of science, they may find to be not in fact an accurate reflection of what scientists are saying. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think instead, and one of the delightful things, I, like I say, I got to spend nearly a decade working with Christian professors. Tons of them were scientists. Yeah. Very few. I mean, I can hardly think of a single conversation. Though there must have been some of somebody who felt like there was a deep tension between their science and their their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, a number had come to Christ as adults or as students, um, yeah. and they felt like what they were doing was, you know, glorifying God and like wondering at His creation as they as they worked. I love that. And so, I think to give our kids a taste of that, to to find those people to. Um, expose our kids to some of those, those you know, leading Christian thinkers in, in all these different kinds of fields would just help them to to recognize that science really should be our thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Not only our thing, not that we should like kick every atheist out of every lab, for, <laughs> like, for sure. Like there's great opportunity to, yeah. to connect with people that we shouldn't be afraid of science. We shouldn't be kind of trying to um, diminish science or to trade science off against God. Yeah. Because I think that actually undersells God's, God's role. Well, I love what you're saying too, that scientists aren't a monolith of non-believers out there trying yeah. to dismantle the faith, which is sometimes how they're portrayed by the church as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can't kick atheists out of the lab. That might be where God saves them, you know? Amen. And they're not going to probably yeah. willingly go to the church. So maybe God gets gets them in the lab, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Also, Rebecca, I'm just wondering what your dinner conversations are like at your dinner table. If I could be a fly on the wall, I'm like listening to you talking. I'm, I just imagine your family life, especially since your husband is also a PhD. I just can imagine these conversations around the table and what that must be like for your kids to sit and listen to you guys discuss. And yeah. Well, like I said, what, what, what I love most when it happens at dinner conversations is when our other friends are part of that. Mm. And and my kids get to see Christians who are living unto the Lord in a variety of different life situations, vocational, like professional awesome. settings, etc. cetera, um, without us in any way trying. And I haven't mentioned this so far, so well now, like same-sex attraction has always been part of my, my story for as long as I can remember. Um, and that's something that I'm certainly have told my kids um, but they, in their close sort of set of grown up friends in our church, we have a number of people who either came to Christ out of like, you know, my best friend, Rachel, who was an atheist in a lesbian relationship who came to Christ when she was an undergrad at Yale after her girlfriend broke up with her or another friend, Paige, who three years ago was engaged to her college girlfriend um, and is now one of the like fastest growing Christians I know. Um, or my friend Lou, who's always been a Christian always been attracted to other guys is living as a faithful single man serving the church with all his all his heart like the my my kids don't go to school and think oh look at all these people who identify as gay or bisexual or whatever and like 
I sort of have only a them and us right. yeah. understanding of that. And I don't know kind of, I don't know what to do or like, what does this mean? Instead they see, oh, I have a bunch of faithful Christian friends who were they not Christians would be identifying as gay or lesbian or bisexual or maybe even transgender. But because they're following Jesus, their lives look different. And so I, I, I think to me, that those are the most precious conversations when they get to hear the stories mm. um, of our friends and when they get to be, you know, our friends sort of sharing their discipleship Yeah, is a beautiful thing. Well, while we're on this topic, I'd love to hear more about how you introduced this topic with your kids about same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships and, and just how you've discipled them into a biblical worldview. Like how, how did that even start off? And then how did you get them to where they can comfortably sit at a table and, and listen to someone's story? Yeah, I think again, I mean, as with honestly, you guys will know any conversations with kids pertaining to sex or relationships you sort of end up having the same conversations multiple times yeah. um, at different, st- you know, as things come up at different stages. And, and sometimes you're like, do you not remember what we talked about a year ago or whatever? But as kids grow and develop, they, they often need all sorts of messages reinforced and conversations rehad. But one thing I've always told my kids is Christians live differently than non-believers. God's people are di- like uh, are living according to a totally different set of of ethics and and beliefs than than our non Christian friends, and we shouldn't expect our non Christian friends to live according to Christian ethics. Yeah. So yeah. they're not surprised to go into school and find that their teachers or their friends don't live according to Christian ethics. Um, I've also very clear with them that, and I see this. It's beautiful to see my my daughters modeling this so naturally I feel like I'm kind of learning from them half the time of on the one hand absolutely loving and um, befriending and uh, being in in good relationship with people who are not living according to Christian sexual ethics while at the same time making hard and costly stands for Christian sexual ethics when those stands need to be taken that's great my my 12 year old has lost two close friends Mm. from those conversations But the charge that she is sort of homophobic in the literal sense of being, you know, um, suspicious of or, or, or nasty to or hateful toward gay or lesbian people is just simply not reconcilable with the life that she lives and yeah. the people who she loves at school. Actually. Praise God, Praise that's God. amazing. What kind of hope would you offer since you just shared that same-sex attraction is part of your story and that you guys have quite a few like friends and your daughter even has friends. Like what kind of hope would you offer to a parent who is listening whose teenager might be struggling with same-sex attraction or mm. identifies, or that's just struggling with their own sexual identity. What kind of hope would you offer that parent? Number one, it's it's probably helpful for all of us to recognize that it's the best statistics I've found at least are that about 14% of women and about 7% of men experience same-sex attraction. Mm. Though only about 1% of women and 2% of men are exclusively attracted to folks of their same sex. So what does that say? Um, what it means is that one in 10 kids in your youth group um, are likely to experience same-sex attraction. It means that there is a decently high probability that one of your kids, at least one of your kids, will at some point experience same-sex attraction. It doesn't necessarily mean that they, in fact, it most probably doesn't mean that they're exclusively attracted to folks of their same sex. And I think that's a mistake that kids often make of like, oh my goodness, I'm like having these feelings and therefore like this is suddenly a kind of, overarching thing that will define every experience I ever have. That's not true. Uh, 
number two, and I think this applies to our kids, whatever their patterns of attraction, turning away from Jesus to follow our sexual or romantic fulfillment will only ever lead to death. Mm. Now, for some, tragically, for some, they will only recognize that at the like when they die mm. um but i have as as i have got to know more and more people who were they not christians could easily be in same sex sexual relationships i have not heard from them oh i'm i so regret having made the choice to follow jesus instead yeah i actually hear the opposite hmm. i i hear jesus is worth it yeah. the love i have in christian community is more than the love that I did have when I was walking away. Um, and we need to make sure that that's true and real. Yeah. Um, and, and that our kids see that. Now, that doesn't mean there are never going to be kids who are raised by faithful Christian parents who do all that they could have done and their kid doesn't walk away in, in sexual sin. And again, that's true, actually, whether they're attracted to folks of their same totally. sex or the opposite sex. There's no right. insurance policy that Christian parents can kind of place on their on their children that they won't walk away from Jesus. It's true, um, but I'm not sure I, sh- I would put the kid who walks away from Jesus for a same sex sexual relationship in like a totally different category from the kid who walks away from Jesus for any other reason. Yeah, yeah. So I think we just need to keep praying um, for our children, um, not lose hope that they might repent and believe because I, I know people for whom that has happened with or without their parents' prayers. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I think we need to trust him. And I, and I do think that it is very helpful for kids to have exposure, even if it's just through reading books or watching talks or whatever, to have a category for the faithful Christian who does experience same-sex attraction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that it's not just like, okay, I have these feelings and the only model I have for this is people who are walking away from Jesus right. or people who say they're not, but in reality, they're not going to be able to hold to the authority of scripture while, while so they, good. they yeah. walk that way. Mm, yeah. That's great. Um, another thing you talk about in your book, which is a big one for a lot of people, is just the idea of suffering and where's where is a good God or how can we trust Jesus um, when a lot of life hurts really bad? And so um, you talk a little bit about Mary and Martha's story when their brother dies. And um, just want you to share with us like what we learned from that story. And if, and if mm-hmm. for our parents who are walking with their children through suffering, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you lead your kids? How do you disciple your kids um, through suffering in a way that... Uh, lines up with scripture Mm. yeah i'm gosh i'm obsessed with that story in john 11 um where you know the headline news is jesus raises lazarus from the dead but in fact if you break it down step by step i think it gives us a whole biblical theology of suffering in like one chapter (laughs) so so at the beginning mary and martha call for jesus they say lord the one you love is is sick notice not lazarus but the one you love Mm. is sick Then John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and he didn't come. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. It would make sense if if Jesus loved them and he came right at once. Right. Or it would make sense if he didn't love them and he was too busy doing other things and so he didn't come. But instead, John specifically tells us that Jesus loved them and so he didn't come. 
And Jesus tells his disciples that it's so they'll, they'll see the glory of God. He waits until Lazarus is dead and buried. And then he comes and Martha meets him and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. I mean, can you see this woman's faith? Like she, mm-hmm. her brother is dead and buried and she still thinks Jesus can heal him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jesus says, your, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, you know, she's a, a good Jew who believes in the, the resurrection of the righteous on the last day. And she says, yes, Lord, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus looks into her weeping eyes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus has, has delayed coming until Lazarus is dead so that he can have that conversation with Martha so that he can tell her that he is the resurrection of the life. He's not a means to an end to get her brother back. He's the end. He's yeah. the thing that she needs. He's the thing that she wants. Then Mar- Mary comes in, falls at Jesus' feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus goes with them to Lazarus's tomb and he weeps with them. So there we see that our, it's not that our suffering doesn't matter. It matters enough to bring tears to the eyes of the Son of God. Jesus is with us profoundly in our suffering even though he has allowed it to happen and even though he will heal it in the end and then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and there we see Jesus you know power to do the unthinkable to call the dead back to life and where does that power come from where is that power leading to it's leading to the cross and the resurrection you know, the idea that Christianity is for kind of shiny, happy people and, and that suffering is some, you know, wrecking ball that knocks the Christian faith over that makes absolutely no sense because at the heart of our faith is an innocent man suffering and dying on a cross and then being raised back to life. So I, I think we meet Jesus in profound ways when we suffer. We have his assurance that he is with us and we have the confidence that he will bring resurrection in the end. And we wait for that in hope. That is just a masterclass on how to take the Bible, apply it to where you're at. And I hope uh, moms and dads can do exactly what you're just saying. Like uh, to answer the question of where is God right now to explain like, well, let me tell you a story where somebody else wondered the same thing. And mm-hmm. to disciple our kids through that is so it's not only uh, good for my heart right now, Rebecca, I feel like you're equipping me as a dad. And so I'm so grateful for that. I was going to say, we're taking our kids through the book of John right now. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. we're in like John chapter so five. Fun. So coming up, we're going to pass off all your words as our own and yeah. uh, <laughs> really help our kids. Well, they're Jesus's words. So they, they, were most, they were mostly <laughs> Jesus's words. Yeah. He was like <laughs> quoting the whole chapter. And we'll yeah. do them with an accent. We'll, we'll do them as best we can. <laughs> and a cup of tea. Yeah. So Rebecca, before we let you go, I mean, we could talk to you all day. I really have loved this conversation, but we'd love to just bless you for a second. Is there anything we can ask our listeners to pray for, for your family that, that you have that on your heart that you'd love to see the Lord do? How can we pray for you? Do you know, I would love for you to pray for a friend um, whose name is Catherine and who um, I am praying hard that she would repent and believe. Okay. Um, she's been coming to study the Bible with us for the last six months or so. We actually, um, we gave out copies of Is Christmas Unbelievable in our neighborhood, invited people to church. Mm. And, I, and I went out, um, you know, it took a few sessions for us to kind of get around the neighborhood 
first session that we went out, I was walking with my daughter, Eliza, he was nine. She said, mummy, how many people would it be worth it coming to the carol service for us to have done all this work of making these little gift bags and mm-hmm. whatever? And I said, just one. And Catherine was the one. Wow. And it, like I say, she's been reading the Bible with us since um, and very like interested. But as yet, the Lord just hasn't opened her eyes. Yeah. And um, I'm just praying and praying and praying that he will. She prayed before we met her that God would make himself obvious to her. Okay. So I would love your prayers that he would do just that. Well, I don't I don't think we need to be surprised when uh, the Lord hears the prayers of our listeners and the Lord opens Catherine's eyes. I would love to see that and and delight and glory in that with you. Thanks for inviting us into Catherine's story as well as yours. And thanks for giving us so much of your time today, Rebecca. My privilege. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. If you think it's as important as we do to disciple your families, please help us out by giving us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. Visit one of our sponsors, share this episode with one of your friends. And if you want to keep up with us, you can join the conversation on uh, Instagram and Facebook. We love you. We're going to be back next week with more great stuff. We'll see you next Monday.